I think that people and organizations who are trying to do that linear planning are going to have a rude awakening that it's not that easy of a clear split. That's not how we work. And so there are some organizations that will do what you're saying, where it's really about you're in the office for A, B, C, D, E, F, G, the end. People are not going to respond super well to that because we don't like to feel like we're being dictated to and controlled. Generally speaking, human beings don't like that. And so I think it's something around the iterative process. You can have the, the best laid plans and intentions and say, we're going to only be in the office for these activities, the end. But there has to be a bit of flex. So for example, if you are going in for three meetings, but you do want to have a catch up with somebody, again, it comes into, are there safety protocols in mind? How can you communicate with that person to help them also feel comfortable? So for example, I've adopted very new protocols where the first thing I'm saying to someone that I haven't seen in a while, or even someone brand new, I'm saying, are you hugging, handshaking, or fist bumping, or doing elbows? I always ask and seek to understand where they are so I don't cross that boundary. And I wish that people would do the same because when you seek to understand, it's so much easier to align. And so I think that, again, it's going to be iterative and it can't be this like rigid linear, we're going to do this and not this because that that's just not the situation we're in. It's far more complex. And it's almost like MC Escher drawing with all the winding staircases going in different places. So linear plans just don't fit that. So I think there's going to be a, a heavy need for feedback from the organization. Granted, it's again, needs, not preferences. And really just finding what works in terms of this hybrid model, because how it looks today is not going to be the same 18 months from now. And they have taken into account the well-being impact of trying to make that linear when it's not linear. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Michelle King, joined by Kelly Thompson, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. Thanks to the pandemic, our working lives seem to be in a constant state of change, with more uncertainty and new challenges arising almost on a daily basis. As lockdown eases, we have to adopt new ways of working yet again. Across the country, people have been called to return to work and to go back to normal. But what is normal? The pandemic raised awareness of the importance of managing mental health at work, which includes talking about the mental and emotional challenges that all of us face, as well as the stress of integrating work and home life and the difficulties of navigating the lack of social interaction in a virtual working world. The new normal includes workplaces where the physical, mental and emotional well-being of employees is the primary concern of managers. Long gone are the days when managers could sweep these issues under the rug. The post-pandemic workplace is a human workplace. In today's episode, Melissa Doman, author, organizational psychologist, former clinical mental health therapist and mental health at work specialist, will be joining us on the show to share why the pandemic has given us the permission slip we needed to be human at work 
and how we can use this opportunity to improve our working lives. So much has been discussed and written about the ways in which the pandemic has increased mental health challenges for just about everyone. It isn't surprising because managing isolation, loss, work-life integration and just living life through a global crisis can feel overwhelming. It's tempting to think that these challenges will disappear once government restrictions fall away and all remaining workplaces reopen. But how likely is this really? And is this even the right way to look at the issue? For many of us, the future world of work is a hybrid one in which we'll mix working from our workplaces and our homes. The benefits of this setup are undeniable, but the picture isn't all sunshine and roses from an individual mental health perspective. A brand new study by the National Centre for Social Research found that people who both worked from home and lived alone suffered the biggest increase in mental distress and loneliness during the pandemic, which is perhaps not surprising given the double isolating effect. But the same research also found that people working from home and living with other people also experienced a significant increase in loneliness. Why is this? As humans, we want and need social interaction and virtual connections are simply not enough and can actually make us feel more disconnected from each other. So as we move into the next phase of COVID, building the post-pandemic working world, it's important that we maintain the focus on mental health that the last 18 months has given us. For employers and leaders, an important aspect of this is to think about how to create environments that provide opportunities for connection and for conversations about the challenges that this new way of living and working creates. I think I'm going to say that I'm somewhere healthfully in between, and here's why. So mental health at work has always been important, always, before the pandemic, or as I like to call the before time. There were some organizations, some industries that were more willing and motivated to open up that conversation. And the way that I look at the pandemic is that it has literally forced the other companies who weren't ready or didn't want to, to take a look at it because they realized they couldn't avoid it anymore. It is a workplace issue. It always has been. It always will be. And so I think what's interesting is that it's on the table for good. That's what I would say. I would say though that each company is in its own stage of change in terms of addressing it and they have their own concerns and their own readiness and willingness. And so I would say I am optimistic, but I'm also realistic that each company is its own ecosystem. It's its own living, breathing organism that's staffed by lots of mini organisms, people. And I think it's going to be a slow burn. I think it was ripped wide open in this past year. And I do feel we're going to see a pretty dramatic change over the next five to 10 years. But I would definitely say that mental health at work is here to stay and any organization or industry not willing to get on that train will frankly see a a brain drain from their organizations because people will go to workplaces that are willing to talk about it. In the first year of the pandemic, all I experienced was grief. Loss is something that all of us have experienced in one form or another. The loss of loved ones, the loss of connection, jobs, relationships, special occasions, businesses, family moments, and even a sense of who we are. 
Everyone has experienced grieving the loss of something. A big part of grieving something is talking about it, so you can honor it, understand it, and learn to live with the grief. Here Melissa shares a loss that nearly every single one of us would have experienced over the last 18 months and the impact that this has had. I would say basic social connection. I would say that just the ease of meeting with people and the ease of physical touch without having second-guess concerns. There are high levels of emotional ramifications that come with that. So for example, something that's happening a lot right now that's typically relegated to you know senior living communities or people living in isolation is touch starvation. That's a real thing. Some coworkers hug each other or like a high five or whatever it is, but that stuff matters. When you're not getting that traditional social connection or even that touch, there are emotional and physical ramifications to that. For example, it can lower immune response if you don't have enough physical interaction with other people. It can lead you to have more vacillations in mood. It can lead to problems with concentration, fogginess. There's a lot of people who are reporting that feeling of touch starvation. And just to make that larger, I would say it's really about the not having that ease of social connection without second guessing what that social connection could mean and what the potential impact could be. There's one major cost of working remotely that's often overlooked, social connection. A Harvard Business Review article titled What a Year Working From Home Has Done To Our Relationships At Work states that informal interactions like bumping into someone and having a chat in the hallway are key to developing social capital. That's benefits that people can get because of who they know. The authors of the article, who are from Microsoft, point out that you rely on your social capital every time you've hit a dead end and someone pitched in to help you, even though they didn't have to. It shows up when you need expertise and someone you'd only met once was able to offer it. And you also help others build their social capital when you go above and beyond to support them with knowledge, mentoring or kindness. According to the article, the reason you can turn to someone else and offer that extra help is that you've built a base of familiarity and goodwill through these unplanned interactions that once filled our workdays. The authors go on to say that social capital is also critical to a thriving workplace more broadly for both employees and organisations. It helps knowledge and information flow. It spurs new ideas and energises our thinking. And it contributes to lower absenteeism, lower turnover and better organisational performance. So clearly the everyday interactions matter. And the post-pandemic world needs to take this into account and factor it into the planning and implementation of those working models. Here, Melissa shares how companies can make space for social connection at work. I think it's going to be an iterative process and there's going to be a lot of tailoring. So what I mean by that is that it doesn't mean we're never going to work in the office together again. That is completely unrealistic. And we are naturally social creatures that do need to be together. And there's going to be loads of trial and error in terms of what that looks like. So I think it's a, a whole combination of things where you're taking safety protocols into account. So for example, you know, is your office going to have gelling your hand stations everywhere? You can wear your mask without being someone saying, why are you wearing it? I'm vaccinated. It's about 
being open about what your safety protocols are and respecting those differences between people. Because if you feel like your protocols are being attacked, that's a great way to cause more division and less psychological safety. So it's going to be really iterative in terms of what are everybody's needs, not preferences, because those are different. What are the non-negotiable needs that we can be together in the same space while having safety so people can actually interact with each other and do their best work? And on top of that, it's really about finding ways to get those needs met because if they go unmet, there are also more consequences, right? So for example, I did a session with Salesforce a few weeks ago and really wonderful leader in the private equity team who's really prioritizing mental health at work. Typically speaking, lots of people are saying, I'm really nervous to go back in the office. I don't feel safe, blah, blah, blah. But this one person on the team said, I am jealous of my other Salesforce colleagues who are getting to go back to the office in London or in other places, but in this specific European country, it's still closed. We don't get to go back. And I'm jealous of that. What do I do? And so if you can't meet the need the way you want to meet the need, you need to find other ways to meet that need in other settings. It's far easier said than done, but an unmet need, if it keeps going unmet, it leads to resentment, feelings of sadness, irritability, yada, yada, yada. So I think it's really about being open and communicative in how can we make people feel not only physically safe, but also psychologically safe? And how can we have organized touch points where possible to keep updating that plan as required? It's not a one and done because this is an evolving situation and an evolving conversation. So any organizations that are only focusing on just the nuts and bolts of health and safety without looking at the mental health impact of the health and safety concerns, that is, they're barely covering half the equation. Because if people are not feeling comfortable in their minds about this return to the office plan, I wish you the best of luck in terms of getting them back to the office. And in addition to that, going beyond just that social connection, if they're doing that hybrid work model, there's also going to be a lot of care required in terms of managing the feelings of value in a remote environment. So for example, a lot of people are quite nervous that for those folks going back into the office and some people who are staying perpetually remote, they're concerned about being deprioritized and being seen as less valuable and out of sight, out of mind. That is incredibly psychologically detrimental to people if they feel that they are quote unquote, second-class citizens within their own organization and the mental health impact of that. As we reopen many workplaces and take our leaps or perhaps tiptoes out into this brave new world, it's tempting to adopt a one-size-fits-all policy for how and when we work. Hey, I'm a lawyer. I know that policies can be really useful. But if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that no two employees are the same. Our needs, home environments and mental health challenges are all different. Which means that for many organisations, the most effective approach is to develop a set of core principles, which give a framework to help managers navigate the challenges of new ways of working in their teams. Rather than a set of inalienable rules into which managers have to shoehorn every individual situation, regardless of fit. Recognising and accounting for individual difference like this is also a good start on the road towards avoiding discriminatory outcomes. 
I think that people and organizations who are trying to do that linear planning are going to have a rude awakening that it's not that easy of a clear split. That's not how we work. And so there are some organizations that will do what you're saying, where it's really about you're in the office for A, B, C, D, E, F, G, the end. People are not going to respond super well to that because we don't like to feel like we're being dictated to and controlled. Generally speaking, human beings don't like that. And so I think it's something around the iterative process. You can have the the best laid plans and intentions and say, we're going to only be in the office for these activities, the end, but there has to be a bit of flex. So for example, if you are going in for three meetings, but you do want to have a catch up with somebody, again, it comes into, are there safety protocols in mind? How can you communicate with that person to help them also feel comfortable? So for example, I've adopted very new protocols where the first thing I'm saying to someone that I haven't seen in a while, or even someone brand new, I'm saying, are you hugging, handshaking, or fist bumping, or doing elbows? I always ask and seek to understand where they are so I don't cross that boundary. And I wish that people would do the same because when you seek to understand, it's so much easier to align And so I think that, again, it's going to be iterative and it can't be this like rigid linear, we're going to do this and not this, because that's just not the situation we're in. It's far more complex. And it's almost like MC Escher drawing with all the winding staircases going in different places. So linear plans just don't fit that. So I think there's going to be a, a heavy need for feedback from the organization. Granted, it's again, needs, not preferences. And really just finding what works in terms of this hybrid model, because how it looks today is not going to be the same 18 months from now. And they have taken into account the well-being impact of trying to make that linear when it's not linear. According to a Forbes report, one in five people today will experience a mental health issue in their lifetime. And this is now more likely due to the pandemic. If your manager isn't comfortable talking about mental and emotional well-being at work, then they need to get comfortable and fast. Research from Verizon Media reports that 93% of managers are finding that the mental health of their employees is having a negative effect on their bottom line. Grief, burnout, discrimination and stress increases the likelihood that employees will miss work and are less productive. Here, Melissa shares how leaders can start to manage the mental health of their employees and make it okay to talk about these topics. What people need to know is how do you change the fabric of workplace conversations in the day-to-day to include constructive conversations about mental health at work, and most importantly, that lead to actions because awareness is not enough. This is literally pasted on my website. Awareness is great. Action is better. You can make people aware, but if you don't shift beliefs, if you don't teach individuals how to acquire the skill set to have these conversations, it's all for nothing. It's all for nothing. No Wellness Wednesday campaign will do anything if someone is privately holding beliefs about mental health stress or mental illness that are 
out of date or potentially influenced by bad experiences that they've had or potentially that they're raised in a culture where it is not okay to talk about these topics. There's so much underneath that needs to be addressed. And so the book is aimed at any individual within an organization that wants to unpack that. So for leaders, for example, there is an entire chapter dedicated specifically to leaders to look at their own beliefs and experiences around, you know, mental health, stress, mental illness, and how to open up those conversations, not only with their team, but with other leaders or their own line manager. And there's other chapters dedicated to literal scripts of here's how to have the conversation. Here's what to say. Here's not what to say. Here's what the other person might be concerned about. And here's what they might need from you. It's really teaching people a brand new skill set, and you can't be an expert overnight. You wouldn't expect somebody to be fluent in a new language overnight. So why would you expect somebody to be a total expert at having a mental health at work conversation overnight? It's totally unreasonable. The biggest theme throughout the book is creating the explicit permission to have this conversation and really teaching people how to do it with intention. That's the biggest goal is why do we need to talk about this? How do we talk about this? How do we get to where we are? Where are we now? What are the obstacles that still exist? We all have a role to play in supporting each other at work, especially when it comes to mental health. If you want your organization's culture to be one of openness and care, where you can talk to your leader or teammates about what's keeping you up at night, a good place to start is to look at your own beliefs about and your understanding of mental health and different mental health conditions. Every one of us in a business contributes to shaping its culture. Are the building blocks that you bring made of openness rather than prejudice or misunderstanding? For managers and leaders, there are lots of legal considerations to navigate and I'd encourage doing this by taking advice at an early stage. But from a practical perspective, the mental health charity Mind provides information on the steps you can take to open up that dialogue around mental health with your employees. First, make it safe for people to talk. People can find it difficult to talk about their mental health but it helps to have an open culture where conversations about mental health are routine and normalised. Ask simple, open and non-judgmental questions and let people explain in their own words how their mental health problem manifests, the triggers, how it impacts on their work and what support they need. Second, don't make assumptions. Don't try to guess what symptoms an employee might have or how these might affect their ability to do their job. Many people are able to manage their mental health and perform their role to a high standard, but may require support measures when experiencing a difficult period. Third, show up curious and respond flexibly. Everyone's experience of a mental health problem is different, so treat people as individuals and focus on the person, not the problem. Adapt your support to suit the individual and involve them as much as possible in finding solutions to any work-related difficulties they're experiencing. Remember, effective workplace adjustments are often quite individual, but needn't always be costly or require huge changes. Fourth, transparency is key, so be honest and clear. If there are specific grounds for concern, like high absence levels or impaired performance, it's important to address these properly at an early stage. 
Fifth, create an action plan. Work with your employee or develop an individual action plan which identifies the signs of the mental health problem, triggers for stress, the possible impact on their work, who to contact in a crisis and what support people need. The plan should include an agreed time to review the support measures to see if they're working. Lastly, make sure you keep it confidential and encourage people to seek advice and support. This even includes making sure that you are getting the support you need, whether from your doctor or a therapist. If your organisation has an employee assistance programme, it may be able to arrange counselling. The pandemic has taken so much away from all of us, some more than others. But the one thing it's given us is a reminder that social connection is critical to our individual and collective success. But the only way to build true social connection is to see the whole person. Mental health challenges and all. Thanks again for tuning in. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, then please reach out at thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter and contribute your story there. If you want to support our work, then please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get yours. Thanks again, everyone, and I'll catch you all again next week. Bye.